they say it indirectly, but they basically say you cannot be an expert on your own experience. It's like being on a parody show, right? The people in charge are worried about everyone else's biases when the core problem is their own. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. Welcome to a brand new season. I'm so excited to be back in my little home studio talking to you and to all the fascinating people who agree to come on the podcast. I know it's been a little while, but I'm back for good for the next few weeks and months. This year, I'm going to try to have a slightly more sustainable schedule so we don't have long breaks like we just had. My goal is to have a new piece of content every week, but we're going to alternate between podcast episodes and essays. I've been doing a bit more writing lately, and I just remember how much I've missed it. It's all at isabelhogal.com. I've had a couple essays that people seem to have liked over the last few weeks. One on global media and whether we need a global media brand or actually a more globally literate national media. And another slightly less related to borderline, but very much important to me around burnout and the incredible workload that a lot of professionals have to handle. And a lot of my writing is around the topics that are related to borderline and living across borders and straddling cultures, as well as around media and management and our modern work life, which are things that matter to me a lot. So to read all of that, make sure to sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already at isabelhugal.com. And this new schedule should also allow me a little bit more time for work, real work that pays the bill because this podcast does not. However, if you want to support it and help me afford a few more episodes, it's easy. Just become a member and chip in a few pounds a month. I'll be so grateful. It's all at isabelhugal.com or if that something you can't spell, totally fair, try borderlinepod.com as well. This week, I was thrilled to speak with Michael Rain, who agreed to be the inaugural guest on this new season. Michael is an entrepreneur and a storyteller, the founder of Anodi, a storytelling and media research company that highlights the lives of first-generation and immigrant people of African, Caribbean, and Latin descent who identify as Black. Those are three identities that are very much a part of Michael's own story, and he and I share a goal in wanting to complexify and humanize the stories we tell about immigrants. We discussed his own background as a Ghanaian-American growing up in Brooklyn, and we really honed in on the professional world, the strides that we still need to make towards true diversity, how multiculturalism can be a superpower in your workplace and in life, and why humility is well and truly dead whether we like it or not. So here is a conversation that covers multiculturalism and work culture, my two favorite things. And I'm so glad to start this new year of Borderline with Michael Rain. I started by asking him to tell me a little bit about his family and growing up in Brooklyn. My dad came to the U.S. from Ghana in 1968, a long time ago, as a student for school. And my mother came the year after in 69. They were married in Ghana before they came here. And uh, several years after, after my dad finished his degree and my mom started her business, my sister was born here and then I was born here. So Fort Green at the time was a Black community a mostly Black American community in Brooklyn. But then after that, we moved to Flatbush, Brooklyn, 
which is still very much a Caribbean community. And even when I went to school, there were, there were immigrants everywhere. I'm so to explain this demographic wise. So Brooklyn, which is in New York for people who are not super familiar with New York is its own borough. And Brooklyn has the largest number of immigrants of any county in the United States. And it neighbors Queens, which has the most diverse set of immigrants in the United States. So there were always a large number of first generation people that I lived near, not necessarily always uh, Ghanaian community people, though um, there was a lot of that through <laughs> family and my parents, friends and various Ghanaian community events uh, we attended when I was young. So you have this famous TED talk, and I love the, the anecdote that you started on, which is your mom making that delicious Ghanaian dish for you. Fufu. Fufu. Yeah. Describe that. What is it? So fufu is, is basically a, a ball of starch that is uh, kind of like sticky. It's not quite like mashed potato-ish, but... And it's accompanied by soup and meat. It's a very delicious meal, but um, not one familiar with uh, those who I went to school with. <laughs> and uh, they thought it was a quite strange thing for me to bring out of my thermos. Um, and it changed like the history of me, of my lunch, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. So, so I... So, I mean, I was, I was, I mean, I was still too young to like understand that, Hey, you know, my parents are immigrants. My friends don't understand the food and they're finding it weird. You just feel like your parents are sending you to school with something that people are teasing you for, right? You just don't want to be teased. And so I, I started asking my mom to make me what I now understand to be more American like dishes, right? Like like uh, a chicken sandwich <laughs> or <laughs> something like that. And I don't know, I, I frustrated my mom so much that she just gave up and she would give me money to just buy my own lunch um, mm. sometime in the fourth or fifth grade. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of the first kind of experiences that you have when you're young that you realize that part of what makes you different um, and why it makes you different and that sort of thing. And I don't know, it made a huge impression on me as a kid. And, uh, thanks for mentioning my quote unquote famous Ted talk, but, uh, <laughs> people, people mostly comment and send me a lot of messages about, uh, them going to school with some food from their culture and, and that reaction, they totally related. Uh, but the best were, uh, notes that I got from parents who are immigrants, who their kids are children of immigrants and how mindful they became of what food they're sending their kid to school. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about it because I don't know the Michael now is like fufu is like a far superior lunch than a chicken sandwich. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, when you, when you're like eight, you don't, you don't see it that yeah, way. You, you just, you don't want to stand out, right? When you're a kid, you want to, you know, blend in and be one of the cool kids or at least one that doesn't get teased. Food is such a visceral expression of culture. 
uh, you know, who we are. I, I, I laugh about you trying to adopt American lunch foods because I remember when I first landed in America in high school and I saw like PB&J for lunch and I'm like, what do you mean? Toast with jam for lunch? Like, where is the meat? Where are the vegetables? Where Where's the three course sit down lunch that I, as a French person, was served in school? You know, uh, it really is um, a pretty universal experience. I think of immigration, the 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 institutional lunch. Definitely, and and you being a French person, I'm sure has a far superior lunch experience than most Americans. <laughs> there was um, this series. I don't know who did it. Um, but a photography series that took photos of different American lunches and, and mm. like lunches around the world and the French ones, I was just like, wow, like that could be my adult lunch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, we, we, we definitely get the short end in the U S and I don't know what that's about. You're doing some work focused on the black immigrant experience in the United States. Can you talk to me a bit about that and how those two identities, you know, black and immigrant kind of interplay for you and for the community that you're writing and, and researching about? Yeah. So it's, it's actually three identities that, um, mm -hmm. I'm juggling and, um, a black immigrant, if they immigrated at a young age, so it's that group and the groups like me who were born in a country different than their parents. So like using myself as an example, I was born in the U.S. My parents are from Ghana. So I, I grew up in the United States, but my home was a Ghanaian home, you know, from my, my family's heritage. And then also juggling this idea of blackness, right. And, and being a black person. And for me, at least in media, in, in, in being a media person, you realize that like you're not represented in any of those demographics, right? Like I'm not represented in people's general conversation about Ghanaians because they think of people in Ghana now. Um, Americans, uh, I'm not, I mean, uh, to use a, a word I'm not fond of, I'm a minority in America. So um, not the first idea of someone's American example. And then growing up in the U.S. as a black person, most of the references refer to black Americans who have been here for generations. Right. And so you are a piece of all of these things and it's like, where do you fit in? Right. You have all of these references and you're in this unique space. And I wanted to create that, that space for people to talk about their experiences and their insights, being this multicultural person with authentic ties to these uh, very significant markers and who you become and, and how you, how that's impacted your life, how that might've impacted your work, that sort of thing. So that's like the, the core thing of a noti, but also just capturing the experience of being a person who was raised in a country different than their parents and how that, that cultural tension, um, comes to define a lot of your life. How so? What, tell me more about that, that cultural tension. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so the lunch thing is an example of something I wasn't aware of when you're a kid, but 
you know, your, your parents were raised a certain way, right? And they're trying to raise you with the same values and all of that, but they're doing it in a very different country of which they're still learning all of the little nuances, right? And the country you grew up in is all you know. And since you're in school, you're more familiar with that, right? Than they are. So there's like a constant battle. Like I, I, I would say the general one is the tension between the collectivist culture of like most of the world and this very individualistic American culture and balancing those different values in that one home and in yourself. It's, it's hard, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's, it's that tension. And the more conversations, the more thinking I do on it, the more research I do on it, I, I become uh, a lot more sympathetic to the, the immigrant parents with the raising the kids. It's like, I, I still don't know how my parents did it. <laughs> I wonder really how much of how much of that is also just you know getting older and kind of getting to the age that your parents were at the time and just having a little bit more compassion perhaps for for how tough that is definitely true definitely true there's no school for raising kids right it, so everyone raises their child like they were raised or or i mean how they were raised is a reference point and then to go to a completely different country where your kids are going to school <laughs> with other kids who it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's really, uh, difficult. So yes, I, I've become much more compassionate as I've gotten older and done these conversations. But I think the people like me who, who are raised in that context, approach the world, approach people with a different eye, right? Like, because. I'll say for Americans, most Americans who were born here in the U.S. can generally only see from that perspective. It's hard for them to see the world or see the U.S. through other people's eyes because they've never had to do that. But when you've had to always do these things, I think you come out with a generally more objective view of a lot of different cultures and people because you're very used to, you just know that there's some other perspective, right? Not just like another, but there's other perspectives in it. I don't know. I, I think it, uh, it sharpens our, our perceptions. That sounds Excuse like a me. superpower. Yeah. I should describe it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've thought about this a bit and I, the, the way that I've defined or attempted to define it is the sense of cultural literacy and this ability to jump between cultures. And I would love to hear how that's, if you've experienced that and how that's turned out for you. But in a way, once you're able to jump between two or three cultures, it's much easier to jump to a fourth or a fifth or, or even just to kind of see the perspective of someone, even if it's a culture that is never going to be yours, right? Yeah. Uh, cultural literacy that I, I, I've been using the term cultural competency. I, I, th I yeah. guess it's the same thing. Um, Yes. And not only does it make it easier for you to see or, or understand other cultural perspectives, it just makes it easier for you to see other perspectives, regardless of what the topic or conversation is, right? Like, um, I guess I'm going to keep bragging on American culture. Things are very 
like cut and dry most things. It's like good and evil, right? <laughs> Black and white, uh, right or wrong, yes or no. And there's much more nuance to that, right? And so regardless of what the conversation or argument is, you know that there's a lot of gray area and you become comfortable knowing that and being open, at least I think, to those other things. How do you think that translates to kind of how you operate in the world or, or in, in what context do you kind of use that superpower or do you feel that you kind of have an edge? Well, I hope it's an edge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, think I mean, so. <laughs> I, I, I think it helps me discover new things, right? Like just the idea of a nodi comes from being able to see all of those different parts of my identity and see those communities in a broader way, in, in a broader way that it's constantly been served to me or, or framed. And I'm, I'm constantly reframing things or seeing things in a different way. It doesn't often feel like a advantage because sometimes it's too forward, right? <laughs> Even the, the concept of a nodi is like too new for people. A lot of people who don't have multicultural immigrant backgrounds, like it's, it's fascinating to me actually, um, that it is, but it, it, it slows, it slows down me doing anything with, uh, I don't know, majority stuff, whether it be a major news publication or any institution, um, regardless of all the rhetoric that they put out there, um, not very open to new ideas, especially when it comes from a multicultural person, to be honest. I feel like if I was not and I was saying the same things, it would be received much differently. Is it that the combination of different identities is too confusing? Would it be better received if it came from someone that they perceive as just an immigrant or just a Black American, but like the, the, the connection of all the different identities is, is too confusing? Is that, is that what you mean? Or So I, I'll just describe it as how I experience it and how I label it. Mm -hmm. I just find that a lot of mainstream things or things in power or whatever, these institutions, it's very difficult for them to accept non-white people being the experts on their own people. Very different, mm. difficult. Like every insight that you share to them is just things that you feel or things you make up or things you like, right? Whereas if it came from a white person making these same observations, they see it as expertise. They see it as cutting edge. And you see this a lot. You actually see this a lot in, um, in the U S with a lot of black American issues, right? There's, there are, uh, black scholars, activists who have been saying th things, uh, for decades, been studying and researching it. But when a white person delivers it, it becomes more adopted and accepted in that person just experiences more success. There was a lot of conversation about this in 2020 during the, uh, George Floyd moment, I guess we'll call it, mm -hmm. um, with people who were, um, at least I saw it on Twitter saying, Hey, I've been doing this consulting and speaking work forever. 
and I'm watching people who are not black get, get these opportunities when they're basically, um, pushing forward ideas that I have been researching and putting forward for, for, uh, forever. And it's a constant, it's really, it's, it's a really difficult block, you know? Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I get it a lot. People, they say it indirectly, but they basically say you can't, you cannot be an expert on your own experience. And it's, it, it, I don't know, it's in a lot of things. I remember <laughs> at a company I used to work at years and years ago, someone, <laughs> so my, my background is in, um, uh, strategic communication, which deals with a lot of crisis stuff. And a senior person once told me that someone who outraked, uh, them said that we can never have any of like the black people work on the, on the crisis issues that deal with black people, because they're going to be too emotional. They're not, they're going to be too biased. They're not going to be able to work on it, which is crazy because if you follow that logic, that means all of the black people should be working on all of the white issues, right? <laughs> but, uh, they didn't see it that way. It's a conversation that we're having in the, in the media, in the journalism industry. And it's been really frustrating oh, yeah. in that when people who are in, I know you dislike the word, but in so-called minority groups write about their own experience, there's the danger they're going to be biased. But being of the majority group is like neutral somehow. Like yeah. they don't they don't get to be biased. Um, there was this whole conversation about working class journalists couldn't essentially write about poverty. I was like, well, because they've experienced poverty. Um, yeah, as if being wealthy and covering business wasn't its own bias. Yes. Yeah. No. It's it's definitely true of journalism in all of those areas that you mentioned, there's this constant conversation about having the newsroom reflect, uh, the audience and the community and it never does because of the, it's, isn't it? So it's like being on a parody show, right? Like the people in charge are worried about everyone else's biases when the core problem is their own, right? <laughs> it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the working class and poor part, because that is like a huge part of a lot of these institutions that refuse to change is the quote unquote class of people that they welcome into their doors. Because while I, you know, greatly champion, um, racial, ethnic, and gender diversity, a lot of times folks are like coming from very similar, like educational backgrounds or, or social backgrounds. And you, you get sometimes a very superficial change. And I say that as someone who has had the benefit of quote unquote elite education. So. Yeah. I mean, um, me too. I, you know, <laughs> certainly you fit the mold quite accurately, uh, who gets the chance to, to work in journalism. Um, it's definitely a conversation that happens a lot in the UK, uh, partly because, well, I don't know if, if, you're, if you're familiar with the UK, but it's a very class obsessed country <laughs> and a I've lot heard. of things are <laughs> determined by but, class. It's fascinating. You know, I've been here five years and I was just like, it's just, it's on every day. It's like people cannot get over 
And there are there are very strong class biases in terms of what accent that you have, you know, when you speak the Queen's English and and certainly British media is extremely, extremely kind of upper upper middle class, upper class um, in uh, everyone has done the same degree at Oxford kind of way, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I haven't experienced it personally, but I thought the uh, royal family was the first clue that class might be issue. <laughs> yeah, well, from there on down, it all it all is is very much like that. I'm glad we're having this conversation. It's just it's something that seems to come up lately again and again in a lot of conversations I have been having. I'm seeing it crop up everywhere. Uh, and worryingly, I'm seeing it crop up with a lot of people that I'm seeing kind of quit uh, the media industry in general or quit their <laughs> jobs. And it's happening in droves. It's happening yeah. to to women. I know a lot. It's definitely happening to black people and people of color in the industry. Is there's this whole conversation about diversity? People get hired, and these organizations say they want to change the face of the organization, but they don't want to be changed by the people that they hire. So they want to hire different people to do the same things they've always done. Yes, yes, that's exactly what they want to do. In many cases, uh, consciously or, or subconsciously. Yeah. Because, you yeah. know, they hire, they hire for quote unquote fit, right. And fit translates like how comfortable am I with this person? And, you know, circling back to the multicultural part, if you haven't grown up exposed to many cultures and many people, your level of comfort is going to be low with a lot of different kinds of people because you have not been exposed, right? Whereas someone more exposed to other people will see fit in, in, in a lot broader terms, right? But um, in, in what you're talking about, yeah, this quote unquote great resignation that's happening in, in the U.S. is so fascinating to me um, and makes me feel like I was ahead of the curve because... I did it like almost nine years ago. <laughs> Very ahead of a curve. I did it just before the pandemic, but but you were you were oh, okay. way ahead of me. <laughs> hey, I was even working uh, remotely back then too. Before like even Wi-Fi was really common in coffee shops, I was working remotely. So felt like I'm living nine years in the future, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Is it because you felt that like? the dominant culture within corporate America was not going to make room for you? You were just going to make your own room on your own? Or uh, what was the, the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a conclusion that I came to years after I left. It, it wasn't something I was very conscious of when I was there. And a lot of it has to do with how I was raised, right? Because my parents weren't raised here. So they, they were still learning about what it was to be black in America. And for my parents, most of the discrimination that they experienced, they contextualize as being immigrants, not necessarily being black. So I didn't grow up in a household talking about being black as a hurdle, right. Or, or how people perceive black people. We just didn't really talk about that in those, in that context. So, you know, things that I experienced in corporate, I didn't contextualize that way. I just 
thought people didn't like me or this person is like, <laughs> um, overtly aggressive or harsh or whatever. So I didn't think about it in those terms. Um, I, I was just in a work situation that was not feeding my spirit that I felt undervalued, way overworked. I, I didn't understand why I was working 65, 75 hours every week and being unfulfilled and unappreciated, right? It just seemed like, what am I doing? And on a like spiritual level, I just knew I, sh I should be doing something else. And I, and I didn't have the mental space to even figure out what that was at the job. So I just had to pick an end date and leave. <laughs> so that's what I did. I picked like my, I picked the anniversary of the day I started that job as what would be my last day. And I just worked towards that and never really looked back to corporate after. Yeah. That's a brief, that's a brave thing to do because it's proven that immigrants are much more entrepreneurial, much more likely to be self-employed, starting their own businesses. Um, sometimes simply because that's the only opportunity open to them because of discrimination. Um, and also because, you know, the kind of people who are willing to pick up their lives and move across the world are not going to just be told what to do. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> but, but at the same time, there was something about the hardships of immigrant lives, and especially when you're talking about kind of working class immigrant lives that make you kind of crave a certain kind of security. And the idea that, especially that your children get a, you know, safe professional job in a corporation, you know, with a pension, that's, that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, my mom was definitely not, uh, excited about the idea of me leaving my corporate job. Right. It's, it's funny. That, so, I mean, what you're saying, so both of my parents were entrepreneurs. So the idea of me being one did not seem scary because I grew up, I grew up like, I mean, working for them, right? Any, any immigrant child with an immigrant parent with a business, you know, that you are a free labor, right? So you, <laughs> you work with your parents, you work with your parents. It seems like the most normal thing. So it wasn't scary for me to say, all right, let me figure out how I can work for myself and do my own business because I, I grew up with that. But yes, my, my mother was not, yeah, she would rather me be at a, what she thought of a, as a comfortable corporate job, right? Which was not comfortable for me at all. And I think still, even with, um, everything I've quote unquote accomplished, she would probably prefer if I still went, went back and worked for somebody. Yeah. One part of being self-employed in your own business has become extremely important and that we've talked about before privately that, that I kind of want to put out to the listeners is this idea that you just have to keep putting yourself forward and building a brand around yourself and just being out there a lot. I don't know about you, but part of me is extremely uncomfortable with that, which people listening are going to laugh because I'm a total oversharer on social media and they know it. But, <laughs> but the idea of like, look how great I am. Why are you sleeping on this? Give me money and all of that stuff that you kind of have to do on social media is quite uncomfortable. I used to manage a team with people all over the world. It was kind of a running 
theme around for everyone, which is that we don't want to do that. And so I'm curious, what is what is it like for you? I mean, part of me is like, you're an American, so you must be okay with that. Because uh, that's, <laughs> that's what American business culture looks like, you know, from, from the outside. Uh, so... No, I've, I've never been really comfortable with attention. Right. Um, and I was going to mention that earlier when we were talking about the lunch thing, I, I just haven't ever really been really comfortable with, with attention, even good attention. Like it, it, I, I like to be acknowledged and then we can move on to the next point. Right. I don't want this like whole spotlight on me for a long period of time, but I've, I've learned that as a function of the work that I do and being independent, people being aware of you and being seen is very, very important. And in fact, the only way you can do your work, <laughs> right? It's the only way you can get clients. The only way you can build partnerships is it's, it's, you, you have to be seen. And I've over time come to accept this idea that, uh, this value of humility that I was uh, raised with is outdated. It does not serve. And, 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 and that's not to say people should be boastful, not to say that people should be loud and braggadocious, but you should not be silent about your skills and your accomplishments and what you do, especially when you are in venues or situations where you're being evaluated or people are seeing you because all you're doing is shooting yourself in the foot. And, and because of the world we live in, this digital media place where everyone is inundated with so much, people who are comfortable doing that get seen and they get more of the opportunities, even if they come off aggravating, right? <laughs> Since more people know who they are, more opportunities flow. And what happens is over time, those are the people who end up getting the most success, therefore, in more positions of power. And then you just have this group of humble people still waiting around to be recognized for their work, right? It's like a, a good friend of mine always says the work should speak for itself, but just in case speak for the work, right? So <laughs> that's a, a good way to put it. But it's interesting what you say, because I'm sure everyone listening can kind of, you know, someone popped up in their mind immediately someone in their industry who's really loud and everywhere and publishes all the op-eds and has the blog and has the Twitter. And, and deep down, you're like, you're not that good, you know, like, but, yeah. but they're known and they're in your face. And, and not only do they do that, there are people who just are, for some reason, more comfortable having quote unquote controversial conversations or, or conversations that upset people or, or strike a nerve. And, and those, those folks get to excel because they get attention. They know how to stir the pot. It's like the business model of Twitter. I feel like is people doing those things, but that emotional stuff works on social media. I, I'll share, a, I guess, a behind the scenes thing for people, a quick story. Last year, a very popular anthology series sent me an email basically like, Hey, just fill out this form and review our edits and we will pay you like as soon as, uh, this book is released or something like that. And I was like, what is this? And basically it was my Ted talk 
um, edited into like a, a little shorter piece. And I don't know, according to them, they thought that Michael Rain was not my real name and someone else with a different name who submitted my TED talk was really me. And they were going to run my, run it in their book, in their series without really verifying it was me. It was so bizarre. So anyway, that got me to Googling my talk in myself, which I unfortunately don't do often. And I found all of these things that people had, there's like ESL things that people had built off my tip, all these things that they're using my name without my permission. But I also found a ton of people who are recommending to talk for good things and stuff like that. Anyway, so I collected that for myself, right? Like who's recommending my talk? This is interesting to me, uh, all these things. So when I decided to share it on LinkedIn, I, I was like, oh, it's kind of boring if I just say, I'm going to, I'm going to share all these places that recommended my Ted talk. It just comes out like those not so humble, humble brags, right? Like, what is that? So I decided to share the story about, about being almost plagiarized and, and that post got so much engagement, right? Because people had this emotional reaction from someone's taking something from you or, or or stealing your work or whatever. And a lot of people are good at that. They're good at figuring out what is, what is going to get an emotional reaction out of somebody. I'm going to lead with that. Right. And I don't know that worked because it gave me an opportunity to share all those good places that recommended my talk. And that got me new traffic for speaking engagements. And I was like, Oh wow, is this, this is what people do. This is how they, this is how they build Lesson their business. Learned. Lesson right? learned. Yeah. At least you did it, you did it, you know, in a, in a positive way, because like, A, you shared a true story. Um, yeah. <laughs> and B, yes, there was emotion, but it wasn't kind of pointlessly controversial, you know, and you, you mentioned that some people are much more comfortable ruffling feathers and getting controversials in what they share. And honestly, the first thing that came to mind is sure, because the price is much lower for them. Uh, because, you know, if you or I get on Twitter and start getting controversial, um, the comments aren't going to be about what we said are going to be about who we are. Right. Yeah. But you know what it is? I think people like me and you should do more. We should just be honest. I think we edit ourselves because we might think, I don't want to say I'll speak for me. I don't know. Sometimes you don't want to ruffle certain feathers. There's certain things that you would rather not talk about in public. But I've realized, and my TED Talks taught me this, is that if you're just honest, people are going to respond to that emotional thing, right? <laughs> because we're human. We all, we all have that. And I guess with being less humble, we should, we should find ways to be more, I'm not sure what the right word is here, because it's not exactly vulnerable. Um, but uh, we should do that because people respond to the truth. It is a bit. I think vulnerable sounds good to me. Thank you so much for this conversation, Michael. I, I really appreciate it. We started out without a plan, and I think we went in a really interesting direction. <laughs> yeah, we we definitely uh, drove around the park and went through the woods. I think we got on bikes at some point, and <laughs> this was it's a good conversation. <laughs> well, hopefully, listeners tagged along for the ride. 
that was Michael Rain. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Michael J. Rain. Check out his TED Talk. Links, as always, are in the show notes. Make sure to get the newsletter so you don't miss the next episodes as well as the essays now coming from Borderline and from IsabelHugal.com. And please support Borderline by becoming a member at the website. Again, IsabelHugal.com. That impossible last name is R-O-U-G-H-O-L. Or you can try BorderlinePod.com. Special thanks to Jeremy Kaplan for introducing me to Michael and to a new member of Borderline, Lisa Weiler. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. The new music is by Audionautics. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production.